My name is Aton Davidson. I'm the Vice President of Communications for Purpose-Built Communities. We're a nonprofit located in Atlanta, and we work across the country with local leaders on holistic revitalization efforts. Today, I am speaking with Deborah Edelson, who is the Executive Director of the Grove Park Foundation. The Grove Park Foundation is what we call a community quarterback that works with partners and residents in a cross-sectoral fashion to bring investments on a, on a large scale into a neighborhood. The purpose of doing that is to make the neighborhood into a platform that is going to enable people to live their best lives at their fullest potential. Working within a neighborhood on that scale is at the heart of the purpose-built communities model which looks to do three things simultaneously, make big investments in housing, education, and community health and wellness, which also includes things like financial empowerment and economic mobility. And so the role of a community quarterback is a complex one. It is a unique one. And in the age of COVID during this pandemic, our community quarterbacks have found them in a very unique position where they've had to rethink their role while still doing the long-term work of helping bring health into a neighborhood. They're also working to very quickly deliver relief to the residents in their neighborhoods. And the Grove Park neighborhood is unfortunately one of the most vulnerable. We're really excited that Deborah's got the time to spend with us today and to tell us a little bit about what things look like in Grove Park right now during this really tumultuous time. We've known each other a long time, but for our listening public, could you tell us where you work, Deborah, the city you work in, what the neighborhood looks like when your organization started? Sure. So uh, my name is Deborah Edelson, and I'm the executive director of the Grove Park Foundation. And Grove Park is a community on the west side of Atlanta, it was originally founded as a white middle-class community. It is now a, a very poor and disadvantaged African-American black community. It is a low-lying, single-family, low-density community with single-family homes and yards. And it is only about two miles from downtown Atlanta, from really the heart of the city. So it's somewhat anomalous in that one might expect a lot more density and demand to have driven the development of this community given its proximity, but it has really existed in many ways on the outskirts of the economic reality of Atlanta for quite a long time. Um, our organization has been a purpose-built community since the middle of 2017. We, we were here since 2015, but it took us a little time to, to kind of really figure out the approach we wanted to take to revitalizing this community. And um, when we met with purpose built, it was it was a match. It really, I think, represented the values that our leadership, our board wanted to take and how we could bring about equitable change in this community. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's been like just working in the neighborhood the past few years, because you guys have made really rapid progress, both on the built environment and also just working with stakeholders and building a real coalition of partners who are trying to move the neighborhood forward in a thoughtful and equitable manner. What we've tried to do is be authentic to the people who are here and the need that is here. 
And there's some just humility, I think, in that. And when we came in and we started first with an education program, we started with four months of very intensive community engagement with leadership around the table, evening after evening, with leadership from Atlanta public schools, you know, faith leadership, business leadership, really everybody, and really introducing what listening and then therefore introducing what is the model of a really community quarterback and saying, we are here to be responsive, to understand your needs, and then to try and bring programs, partners, dollars to meet those needs. And and I, I think it didn't just stop then, that model continues, but I think it really, it builds the right groundwork for going forward to really start with that kind of engagement and then to live true to it as Every project comes on board. We go to the neighborhood. You know, we said we want property. We think we want to do affordable housing. So we went to the community and we said, we're going to apply for tax credits so that we can make this as affordable as possible. It took two years. They kept saying, what's going on? We said, well, we apply for the tax credits. We'll let you know when we find out. And then we got the tax credits. We went back. We said, we got the tax credits. Now we're looking to find a partner to help build it. And so, you know, I just think it's about respecting that you're in someone else's neighborhood and that your job is there to empower them and bring them along and then really leave and remember that it's their place and not your place. You're there to help and provide an assist and maybe push and lead from behind. I've been following your efforts since almost the beginning, that period that you're talking about starting with an education program. And you know, I, I know what you didn't talk about in that answer is that it wasn't always smooth sailing. You had to have really difficult conversations with people. You know, I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit what it was like working through issues that people really care about, are very close to their heart, and how that might have built trust and, and, and gave you that platform, that foundation of trust to work from. Yeah, look, education is a hard subject. Everyone, you know, everyone feels like they know because they're a parent and their child's in school, so everyone's an expert. And They've all had very true experiences, good and bad, and you can't deny them their experiences. So the question, you know, for us and the challenge was, how do you honor everyone's knowledge and experience, but still try and move a conversation towards something different than what we have? Because all the schools were failing and it wasn't working. And APS was with us. They were not, you know, they were, there was a partner saying, we know that what we've done here thus far, for whatever set of reasons has not produced the results that these children deserve. So how do we do something different that still respects that this is a a public school system or brings better results? And so there was very clear, like you said, from the trust perspective, some parents were like, do not bring a charter school here. I don't trust charter schools. They're not going to take my child or they'll take my child and kick them out. Or it's going to be exclusive or for some way it's not for me or or my, my child. And there was just a lot of suspicion whether right or wrong about that and and then there we were new too and it was you know and we had to make sure we weren't seen as the agent who's coming in to bring a system that wasn't desired or trusted so we had to build trust first as an organization coming on the heels of many others who have promised and maybe not fully delivered or delivered at all and then we also had to look for solutions that also built trust and showed that we were really implementing their wishes and we weren't coming in to push down a set of systems and values and solutions that they weren't seeking or asking for. 
And that for us ended up being this kind of hybrid where we're in Atlanta public school um, attendance zone. Um, but when you walk in the school, the education is provided by KIPP, one of the lead, obviously, charter schools in the country and providing education in the inner city. And that even, you know, even that had its detractors and its questions and its skeptics. But it it checked enough of the boxes for I think the vast majority that it was acceptable and they could, I think people saw the buy-in from all the partners and that that would be really significant in creating the outcomes they wanted for their children. The reason I'm, I'm asking Deborah about that process that you started with education to that point, education was, was kind of the, the start of this. It was, it was the start of building a relationship with different stakeholders and residents in the community what you've been able to do in housing, in financial empowerment, health and wellness has been pretty staggering in, in, in a short amount of time. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what it's been like sort of building a, a suite of resources for, for the community and, and how that has perhaps strengthened the relationship. And this is a place where I little, I'm a little bit I struggle um, about how much to lay out at any one point in time. So again, you know, I'm an urban planner and, and when I went to school many years ago, you're kind of taught that you, you know best and you're going to, this is how it should be. And then you're going to bring these services and these ideas and you're going to put them down on a community. And we really worked hard to do a lot, but not, push it out and as fact or, or we know better. And so, you know, essentially the introduction and the rollout of anything is done incrementally instead of saying, here's a vision next five years that we think you should do Grove Park. That would imply that it would more than imply. It would say, we know better, right. than you about what's in your community. And so there were some things we started with very intentionally and quietly. We bought land. And that land we knew would be critical for whether it was to build a school or build housing or many other things that this community needed. We knew that that was going to be a literally a foundational and anchoring piece of investment. And in fact, it has right it allowed us to to build a, this this school YMCA early learning and wellness campus. It's also allowed us now to to start building our um, housing affordable housing units. So you know that's. You know, that was one piece that I think enabled us to, I don't want to say set up a pipeline of projects, but to envision at least that since we had the land that we could introduce and seek, you know, engagement and ideas and partners around ideas because we, we controlled, right, the land, which is just fundamental for building that civic infrastructure. So I think that was a, um, a really important, important piece of planning ahead, not like not always knowing what's what you're planning exactly for, but understanding that without certain resources, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> you and your partners have been working on these big projects, big kind of things that are going to have an impact for the very long term. You know, you mentioned the health and education campus, you mentioned mixed income housing. Those are institutions that you're building that will last for generations. The pandemic hits all of a sudden and you have to react. And that's not necessarily what you were built for. 
how did you quickly make a calculation that we need to do something differently? And, and, and what were those conversations like? And how did you quickly pivot to meeting the needs of residents in the midst of this awful pandemic? So I do think that how we do what we do, really being the community quarterback model, the purpose-built model, does put you in a position where you are knowledgeable and engaged with the community such that you understand the landscape. And why that's important is because when crisis hits, you have to have the ability to kind of do that assessment of the landscape. So this is the trauma. So here it's 75% of the people we believe lost their jobs because Grove Park is really, the residents work in the service industry and we all know service jobs disappeared. So one is you have to be able to kind of have enough of a high enough, high enough level and set of relationships that you can survey what the crisis is. And then you need to be able to assess who else is out there that can help and where are we all going to fit into the puzzle. And so we were able to get, thankfully, some city of Atlanta and Fulton County funding, some, which is federal dollars, which gives us you know, another nine to 12 months, which is frankly what we need based on our observation that the jobs are not coming back and that, you know, and if the jobs aren't coming back, then the rent utilities are still going to need to be paid or they're going to be evicted or effectively live without, without power or without water and essentially be living in homes, but as home, you know, but in very, very deteriorated and, and, you know, conditions. So it was a journey, but it actually was kind of not a long journey. It was, it seems like all the right forces kind of came together to, to lead us into this space. And now we are deeply committed to this space, trying to build our capacity and trying also to not just see this as an unrelated piece of our work. So pay someone's rent, someone's rent utilities, we're not walking away from them. Then how do we refer them to other pieces and, and, and parts and partners where they need additional assistance? And more importantly, we have a financial capability program. And since Clearly, you know, folks have been living here close to the brink of disaster. We are encouraging and referring all of them into the financial capability program, which is free, to try and see this as it's not just COVID relief, but it's recovery. And we can't recover unless we're going to have more skills, access to jobs, better credit, record expungement, a whole bunch of these pieces that will build the capacity for these residents long-term and their access to better jobs and a more stable set of circumstances. So it, it's also just seeing this as a pipeline, frankly, to, to build more capacity and skills for these residents. How has it been received and what is, what is the mood in the community? You know, are, are there any particular stories or anecdotes that are kind of sticking with you that Maybe things that keep you up at night or maybe things that motivate you to keep working harder. You know, you, pro- you probably understand that this is kind of anomalous. This is really direct service work that we frankly didn't anticipate getting into. You know, the quarterback role is at least traditionally, right, a little higher level. And so while we, of course, engage with people and know them and see the circumstances we live and we go in their homes, I would say that there's, at least for me, who's really paying these bills, when you are given access to see that someone already has a $2,000 backwater bill before COVID, you really understand 
the level of poverty that people are living in. This is just kind of like the final straw, you know, that's going to, that'll push people over the edge. But when you're living on minimum wage in these service jobs, you just, what you, what I, I mean, what has just become very real to me as I pay bill after bill after bill is that this is the structural racism. These are the systemic inequities and minimum wage is not humane. We need livable wage. And minimum wage is a, a death sentence for poverty, for dire poverty, where what we see is that families are paying the rent bill one month, the water bill another month, the power bill another month. And they're all on payment plans already, long before COVID came along. And so it's a window in a very personal way into people's struggles. And we have two staff who have been doing this. And I can tell you that has taken emotional toll on both of them, you know, talking to people in these times where they're frightened. They don't know they can keep a roof over their head. They don't know they can feed their children. So while we were still working with these people, we're in a more intimate conversation and space with them. And yes, it does keep me up at night. And yes, it gets into your, absolutely gets into your gut because I take for granted that I can pay my bills and then I'm not gonna lose my roof. brought up structural racism, and appropriately so, because obviously during this pandemic, we have also seen perhaps the birth of a new civil rights movement that has been long overdue. You know, I, I would love to hear from you what that looks like in Grove Park and, and what that conversation sounds like. It's a little hard because we've been socially distanced to get as much of a read as I say as I'd like to have. I think a lot of people are still in the panic mode. So while I think I'm hopeful like you that there's empowerment and positive coming, I think there is a sense that people feel that it may come, but people's day-to-day circumstances are not any better yet. So I don't mean to be a downer. You know, I do think, you know, there's a growing sense of a possibility, but there's skepticism and there's decades of dashed hopes, and there's still a day-to-day survival challenge. So I hope that it's going to become more hopeful. My sense is that it's not turning yet. The other thing is that just until this week, you know, I would always ask in our staff meetings and of of my colleagues, you know, have you heard, is COVID hitting this community yet? And really, some people kept saying, I haven't really seen it yet, haven't heard it yet. Well, this week, we hear that it's arrived. And I think what happens, and this is just my conjecture, is that in, re- in these really disadvantaged communities, people don't have cars, they don't have money to go places, they're very self-contained. Whether they want to or not, they're pretty self-contained communities, especially when they're not working. And so there aren't a lot of new entrants into the pool in terms of you know transfer of you know, of the virus. But what I, and I've heard this in other communities, but once it gets in, it is, runs rampant and it's brutal. 
So I hope that's not the case. But that was the news I heard this week. And so I am fearful that the worst is yet to come on a few fronts. That's a very realistic kind of picture that you're painting. And it's very difficult, you know, specifically with the Black Lives Matter movement and the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and and now in Atlanta, Rayshard Brooks. Has has activism uh, started to pop up? In, in the Grove Park neighborhood, has it been a, a, a big focus and concern for, for people there? Or is the virus and the economic devastation more top of mind? I mean, I, what you're talking about, you know, decades of dashed promises and having a little bit of hope, but being very realistic. How is the, the police conversation, the public safety conversation playing out to your knowledge? I'm going to say that I don't have a lot of specifics. There were no protests in this neighborhood. There was, certainly was no violence in this neighborhood. You know, I think this is a pretty grounded neighborhood. Felt like Grove Park's always had kind of a special vibe that is very neighborly and community. I'd be surprised if people in this neighborhood set their own neighborhood on fire. Not to say that, not to judge anybody for doing that. It says something, right? I wouldn't expect that here. The longtime residents here are very, I think, just protective. In terms of the police, you know, I I don't see a relationship of any worth between the community and the police. There's a constant rotation in zone one. Every neighborhood meeting we go to, I'm the new commander, I'm the new lieutenant, every two, three months it turns over. So unfortunately, there isn't what you'd like, which is a kind of a, a sense of familiarity over time. I don't know that it's any better or worse right now. This is a this is a zone where, you know, the police only come when there's a shooting or something of that magnitude. So I don't know that much has changed, really. But I also am going to say again that I feel a little disconnected and just not seeing people eye to eye for four months now. You know, the conversations are just a little more stilted and you get on the, get on the phone. You know, and a lot of people, it's just not a phone conversation often. I don't even see a whole lot of signs in the yard. I mean, I, and I don't think that's because people don't believe and in their deepest, you know, hearts. I think to your, the core of your question, you know, economic realities, Muslim's hierarchy reigns, really. To that point, I think it's, Long overdue that as a country, we're talking about systemic racism. Obviously terrible that these tragedies have have brought us to to this point, but there does seem to be a growing awareness. My sense of your organization is that that sense of pursuing justice has been there from the beginning. And, And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, how racial equity and racial justice have driven your organization, driven you personally? If you want to share anything from your personal story as to why you are engaged in in racial justice work, if you would call it that. I was raised in D.C. at least until I was 12. But my memories are of being on, you know, the mall and holding candles and vigils with my parents, mostly with my mother, whether it was, you know, for all kinds of things that we were protesting for in the 60s and 70s. So I think there's a social justice 
you know, that kind of runs in the veins of my family. We all work in nonprofit and government. And that's, I think, just the space that I, I was weaned on, right? When we moved from DC proper out to 70s, so we were white flight. Ironically, the house we bought, and I think because it was the cheapest house in the neighborhood, was next to about the only Black family in the neighborhood. And I grew up playing with my friend Melanie, my next door neighbor, you know, young Black girl who was my age. And was very colorblind to that, you know, until some of my friends started asking, What's, who's that girl you play with, right? And, and then you're, then again, you don't have any language for this, and certainly not in the 70s where we didn't have media and we weren't all just as savvy about the world. And then I started to just pick up on those, the nuances of the question, how was it asked and how was my answers were perceived. So. So that was my just kind of like my earliest experiences, kind of being perplexed, right? Like I was in her house, she was in my house. What was the difference? We look different. So what? We're all different, right? So that was just, you know, I think those are the kind of the formative years that really shape your your value system. Subsequently, I, you know, lived lots of places, um, both overseas and you know, and in New York, and where it's just a more integrated color scheme of people, you know, Atlanta is quite segregated. And, you know, I've worked in housing, I've worked in economic development in a lot of these places. It just doesn't make sense that if you're born, that the accent of your birth and your zip code should determine whether you can live to your full potential or not. You know, in Atlanta, in this area, if you're born in 30318, which is our zip code, your life expectancy is 12 years less than those who are two miles north of you. And that just makes me angry. <laughs> like, it's just not right, right? It's just not right. Why should you be born so disadvantaged and not have access to healthy food and pharmacies and banks and all the things that you need? It just, we're not providing our society is not providing at the most fundamental level to allow our residents to thrive, to allow children's brains to develop in their early years, to give them a ladder to opportunity. Our system is broken and it's, and it's eating itself because the cost of mitigating that later, if you can, always exceeds the cost of investing upfront if we were smart and we invested in the early years. And so it's not a smart economic decision. It's certainly not a fair social and you know, system. It, you know, it is, it is biased and it, is, it literally eats its young. I mean, it, we're, we're not in a sustainable place that can, you know, Atlanta can rise only so far if it's going to leave half of its residents behind earning less than $25,000. That will have an impact on the ultimate trajectory of even with highfalutin business, if we can't, if we can't start to close those income gaps, we have Atlanta's the second, I think, largest income gap in the country in terms of major cities. We have to close that gap, and there is no other way other than investing in the social infrastructure of our communities. So, I am absolutely committed to it, and I just hope that we can bring in more partners and more dollars and more businesses, because it'll produce better results for them. If nothing else, selfishly, you'll have better qualified people, you know, 
to hire and everything else. So that's, that's kind of my story. And I guess what, you know, what I see and the people who are on our board and the people who work in our staff could all make more money. Everyone could do other things. We're all driven by that deep sense of social justice and trying to start to, you know, even out the inequities. So you, you, you touched on this in, in, in that answer, but I'll ask it a slightly different way. Is the neighborhood the unit of change? And if so, why? I think it's the right scale for it, certainly, because it is about humans, right? And if we go to a, to a higher level of scale, it's not about humans, it's about numbers, right? And you think about either any business or even a lot of really large nonprofits, what are the metrics? What are the metrics, right? I'm not saying we don't have to have metrics, but it's about humans, you know, and if we're just calling them metrics, we're not, we're not really going to effectuate the change that's needed. And if you go, if you scale up to, you know, anything else, any larger units, resources will get to some, but it's not going to get to the ones who need it the most, frankly, because the ones who need it the most are hard to get to. They may not have technology. They may not, they are not available during the day when the job training classes are. They have to, you know, when they get home in the evening or maybe they work crazy shift hours and then when they're home, they have to, you know, figure out how to get the groceries and do the laundry and take care of their children and get to the doctor. And if you just say, look, there's a job training program, you know, 10 miles away, go take a bus. It's not going to happen. And so to really reach those in the most need, work has to be done close to the ground. And so I would say, yes, you know, neighborhood level is the, is the way to do it, both because it's because you interface with humans, but also because at that scale, you can also hear and see the values and the cohesion and frankly, the, the discord also, where does it, where is the discord and why is there discord? And that also is part of responding in a way that is authentic to the place. You know, there, there are fissures in these neighborhoods. People are having a hard time, you know? Yeah, I absolutely think that that is part of the, you know, of the, the genius of the purpose-built model is that it, it says to do this work, you have to focus and stay, you know, stay close, stay really close. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm thinking about what, what, what the future is going to look like in, in Grove Park. And obviously this predicting the future is not a, not a good business to be in. So I'm not going to ask you to do that, but I will ask, what are your hopes for coming out of this pandemic, given your role, your partner's roles in this community what are your hopes in terms of relief, recovery, and, and ultimately resilience for Grove Park? I think that the relief work, in, in my optimism, would naturally seamlessly yield into recovery work, which really looks like financial capability. It's economic mobility and understanding that, you know, for the big partners, the big funders, the big business, you know, people who make the rules, right? that keeping, that not funding the social change and the needs at this level is, go, is going to result in what we have now, an utter disaster, right? 
where people are just living on the edge of economic disaster, health disaster. So the comorbidities are completely more fragile, you know, and, and susceptible to whether it's a virus or anything else, which then runs up our hospital costs and our healthcare costs and everything else. This is this has shown a light on the cost to our again, the cost to our society at large for having left these people behind. And so if we can lift up that message and say, if we invest in these people and we give them a path and they, they become credit worthy and they can have access to workforce development and job training, and we can get record expungement for people who maybe had a shoplifting offense 20 years ago so we can back get them back into the workforce, then when something happens again and the next crisis comes, they'll be more resilient. It'll be a better outcome, not only for the individuals, but for our society. So we're not tasking our hospitals and we're not killing our healthcare providers, you know, and plus shutting down our economy for four months, you know? So I hope that what we're doing is we're connecting kind of up and down the causality. I don't know if that's really the right word I want to say, but the social determinants of health are also the social determinants of bigger city, state, national, economic health as well. So I hope we're connecting those dots in terms of like, and then more specifically, like for the funding we've received for this, again, this COVID relief, I hope it's going to organically evolve into support for, again, those job training, the financial literacy and all those things. I hope that the funders are going to come along and see that that is the natural extension of this work is to build people's financial capability and resilience so that we're not in this bucket again. This is my probably my last question. What you just described in terms of the obstacles that people face every day in Grove Park, in terms of record expungement, you know, lack of transportation, you know, all, all of the all of those things kind of piled up that make racial inequities, the systemic racism. You, you just articulated how they impact everyday lives. The Black Lives Matter movement and it's rapidly gaining support among the public. As obviously it started, it's it's starting with how police interact with with black and brown communities. But I think you know, you know, and we all know in this work that what needs to be done is much bigger than just policing. So, what are your hopes for where we can take this moment in terms of building racial equity in a more holistic way? Well, just to get back to the policing, you know, a little bit. You know, the police can't can do everything. I mean, and I'm not, you know, exonerating anybody for any behavior, but they can't be the social workers and, you know, the drug counselors, you know, and foster parents and everything else. Unfortunately, that occurs in a lot of disadvantaged communities where there's a lot of social, emotional, behavioral needs, a lot of trauma. We as a society need to fund those social challenges and accept that we have created them and not think they're just going to go away because we don't want to look at them. You know, we have to not, we have to create social justice, you know, in our judicial system and not put people in jail because they have mental health issues. We don't know what else to do with them and the homeless and we, because we don't know what to do with them. So we put them in jail. We have, you know, my hope is that we will start to unwind. We've kind of, throwing all these things into a knot 
I hope we'll start to disentangle that knot and start to say, there's a whole series of social, emotional, behavioral, mental health issues, community, family issues that need to be addressed each in their own appropriate space. And that's not called the police department. And it's not called jail, you know. And so I hope that's some of the, the learning that's going on here. You know, whether we rename a police department something else, that's, you know, that's, that's optics. And sometimes optics matter. But we have to do the hard work as a, a city and a state and a federal government that recognizes that there are humans, whether poor or rich or black or white, but certainly if they're, if they're you know, of color and poor, that are going to have higher incidences because they're disadvantaged, because their school are failing, you know, because they don't see the promise of life ahead of them, that these become trauma, traumatized and behaviors that can be addressed productively instead of punitively. So that, that's my wish. That's my hope is that we can see people for each of their promise, each of their potential, each of their opportunity. And they all have faults and flaws and tweaks and funny things that result from their experience. But it doesn't mean we give up on them and we just throw them away. Let's see them as people with opportunity who, you know, and provide them the support they need. So that was my last question. If there's, you know, any other thoughts you want to share, reflections on kind of the moment that we're in right now, either professional, personal, or just observations about what's happening in the country. I'd love to love, love to hear what's on your mind. Yeah. I mean, I really hope that we can all have enough humility to learn from each other, myself included slow down a little bit to listen. A lot of people are in a lot of stress. It's come out at every, you know, in every way with partners, with board members, with residents, people are reacting. They're a little bit on a short fuse because everyone, everyone's stressed. Everyone's living through a really painful time. And so I think it's a time of giving grace, being patient, listening and learning. And I hope, I just hope that that we'll all do that and allow ourselves to think outside our box and whatever sphere we're in, allow ourselves to think a little, a little differently. I think that's the space where we are. And of course, engage, sorry, vote, fill out your census, engage, right? Speak, engage, make sure you're empowered to your, to your needs. That was uh, our conversation with Deborah Edelson, the executive director of the Grove Park Foundation. It's it's rough out there, folks. The challenges that families and children and individuals are facing, particularly in the Black community, across cities in America, they can't really be minimized. We're in one of the most perilous times in, in our history that's threatening the health of all of us, but in particular, those who live in neighborhoods that were designed to keep people disenfranchised and to keep people disengaged from the American dream. So we, we just heard from Deborah how some of that is playing out in the everyday obstacles that people face in their lives and the systemic racism that's at the heart of it, that we're working every day to 
overcome or repair or counteract. And this is work that we need everybody to be a part of in a way. And the Black Lives Matter movement provides some hope in that regard in that people are waking up to understand finally what systemic racism is, that it's not about a single person's individual prejudice, but rather systems that were designed to give resources to some people and to not others, to give rights to some people and not others. And it flies in the face of, you know, the American ideals that our founders espoused, but it is the reality that we're living. And so that work, it's incumbent on all of us to recognize that and to help out where we can. If you want to find out more about the Grove Park Foundation and all of the other network members that are part of Purpose-Built Communities, you can visit us on our website, purposebuiltcommunities.org, O-R-G. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening.